Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Thanks for joining us for the final episode of this podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about the roots of the Next Left podcast. They go back almost exactly a year. Energized by the wave of progressive activism sweeping the country in 2018 and the start of 2019, we decided to take a deep dive into the new politics of this moment. The idea was to talk about campaigns and elections, about voting and governing, with the people who were upending primaries and general elections across the country by challenging incumbents, taking on party establishments, and above all, bringing fresh ideas to the campaign trail and to governance. Over the past six months, we've gone to Capitol Hill in Washington, where we met with members of the squad like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, and with people who are changing debates about foreign policy, like Congressional Progressive Caucus stalwarts, Pramila Jayapal, Mark Pocan, and Ro Khanna. We went to the basement of the state capitol in Wisconsin, where newly elected state treasurer Sarah Godlewski explained how she's putting economics on the side of the people. We spoke with judges and district attorneys and city council members and mayors. We turned up the volume on messages from Texas and Mississippi and Puerto Rico and North Dakota. We talked mostly to political newcomers who had won elections against the odds, like Ana Escamani in Florida, but also to activist officials who are building movements, such as Helen Gim in Philadelphia. We talked to new leaders who had won landslide victories, like Jackson Mayor Chakwe Antar Lumumba, and to new leaders who suffered narrow defeats but are not going anywhere, such as Tiffany Caban in Queens. We followed candidates who were up for election in 2019 and won epic victories, like Lee Carter in Virginia, Shama Sawant in Seattle, and Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. In every case, our conversations were about the personal and the political. Candidates talked about their ancestors and their children, about their communities, about the music they listen to. And by the way, Ilhan Omar really is a big country music fan. And about their role models and heroes. We decided to finish the season by interviewing a pair of political veterans who were frequently mentioned by the young candidates and officials that we discuss politics with. California Congresswoman Barbara Lee joined us last week. This week, for the final episode of the podcast, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, a 2020 presidential contender, is our guest for a compelling conversation about his own early campaigns, about the importance of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, about how he makes endorsements, about the way in which media treats insurgent candidates, and perhaps most importantly, about the inspiration he has taken from the next left. Senator Bernie Sanders, welcome to Next Left. Great to be with you, John. Well, it's, a, it's certainly a pleasure to have you. I, I want to get right into uh, the moment that we're in. Around the time of the fourth debate, in fact, during the fourth debate, you announced that you were going to be having a rally in Queens and that it would break some big news. At that rally, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman from New York City, endorsed you. And in that endorsement, she spoke at great length about being inspired by your 2016 candidacy, but also by your long service. That must have been incredibly humbling for you as, as a candidate. 
It was. And I got to tell you, I am a huge fan of Alexandria. Uh, and as you know, we also have Rashida Tlaib on board and uh, Ilan Omar on board as well. These are members of Congress who are doing exactly what has to be done. They are getting their support from the community, from working people, from people of color, from young people. And they are demonstrating in Congress a willingness to stand up to the big money interests, which have so much power over the economic and political life of this country. So that was a great rally, uh, as well with the rallies that we did with Rashida in Detroit and Ilhan in Minneapolis. And when you and I talked a long time ago about the idea of a political revolution, say four or five years ago, when you were talking about this idea of a political revolution, I imagined that you were talking about classic organizing, mobilizing, messaging. I didn't imagine at that time that it involved getting all sorts of people to run for office. But that really is a part of the political revolution, isn't it? Well, John, during 2016, I think there was not a speech that I gave which did not say to the young people, to the people who were there, to working people who were there, get involved in the political process, run for office, whether it is school board, legislature, city council, uh, Congress, whatever it may be, that we have to break down this psychological barrier where people think, you know, I don't have a PhD in economics or in healthcare. I, I just don't know everything. And we got to break that down and make people understand that if you have a heart full of compassion, if you understand what's going on in the world, if you believe in justice, you can run, you should run, and you can win. And if you don't know everything about everything, well, join the club. Nobody does. But it is terribly important to break down that barrier where people think, oh, the only people who can run for office are people who are politically connected, people whose daddy or mommy was a big political fundraiser or politician. We got to break that down. And I think, as you've indicated, we are making real progress. I get all over the country and I get tremendous satisfaction out of going to some rally and somebody comes up and says, Bernie, you know, I ran for school board and I won. I'm on the city council and I won. That is fantastic. That is part of the political revolution. Absolutely. As we've done this podcast over the better part of the year, we've talked to people who've run for all sorts of offices, Congress, city council, the state legislature, and for positions some folks might not have thought of, like a judgeship in Texas or district attorney in Queens. District attorney is a huge issue. Yep, we're making progress there as well. State's attorneys, yeah. And that's where it gets interesting because these are, these are people, I think, who are starting to think about all sorts of political offices, not the, not the traditional expectations, but a broader sense of all these positions that we elect, that if you bring progressive ideals into them and start thinking about them, these are incredible opportunities to, to make change, not just by winning the presidency, but right down to the grassroots level. No, absolutely right. And, you know, what we're seeing just in the last few years, whether it's Larry Krasner in Pennsylvania or others around the country, district attorneys, prosecutors, are now understanding that we have a broken and racist criminal justice system. And as often as not, their job now is to try to get people out of jail rather than put more people into jail and to expose uh, the corruption that exists in the criminal justice system. So the point you're making is you don't have to just run for Congress. 
I mean, you can run, given all of the crises we face in education, having strong people on the school board, having strong people on city council, strong people in state legislature, enormously important. And people, we are, we're doing everything that we can. Uh, and that's what our revolution, which was the organization that came out of our campaign, was all about. That's what it was about. It was urging our supporters all over the country to run for office. And many of them, in fact, have done that. And a number of them have won. Let me talk about one case in a, a district attorney race just in recent weeks. Chesa Boudin, who is running in San Francisco, it was an uphill race. He faced a lot of opposition. You chose to, to jump into that race to make an endorsement there. Boudin's reaction to that was to hold a press conference, to put out social media, and he won very, very narrowly. I'm interested in how you decide now as a presidential candidate, a very prominent figure, to make those endorsements? Well, we do it case by case. In case of Boudin, we are spending a lot of energy looking at the broken criminal justice system. He had a platform which is consistent with what I have been talking about, and we felt it was a good idea to endorse him, and I'm glad uh, that he won, very proud that he won. And you also weighed in just recently on the Seattle City Council races where Amazon was uh, pouring money into those races. Yep. And I thought that was that was a very significant intervention. And you did that not merely on behalf of candidates, but really on behalf of an idea about municipal politics and local politics not being overrun with money. You got it. It's not just that you had some progressive candidates who were up for re-election, but that you had Bezos and uh, Amazon spending millions of dollars trying to buy that election. And that disgusted me. It disgusted me at the national election when you have billionaires spending hundreds of millions of dollars. But in Seattle, a city which is facing, among other things, a terrible housing crisis, you had people who were trying to deal with that crisis and uh, take on the big money interest in the community, and Amazon said, we're gonna beat you. So I was very proud to have supported a number of the candidates there. And again, uh, it was a tough fight, but uh, they won, and that's a good thing. And it shows that at the end of the day, while you know Bezos and these other guys have unbelievable amounts of money, if you organize effectively, if you do good grassroots work, we can beat them. We can beat them in Seattle. We can beat them in state legislatures, and we can beat them for president of the United States. And this takes you back, to some extent, to your roots, because you started out as a candidate. You didn't have presidential candidates endorsing you when you were making your initial races. <laughs> I think that would be a minor understatement. <laughs> you were you were a little bit on your own out there. You had some allies up in Vermont, but you made some some very difficult races. You lost your first four races for statewide office, and then you decided to kind of take a step down and, and run for mayor of Burlington. Talk to me a little bit about that as a, as a learning experience for you as somebody who's now gone up the ladder again. Well, you know what? The lessons I learned in that election in 1981 are exactly the lessons that we are, are applying in this presidential race. When I ran for mayor of Burlington, by the way, as an independent running against a five-term incumbent Democrat, 
And one newspaper writer said, well, the odds of Sanders winning are about 100 to 1. Nobody, nobody, nobody thought we could do it. But what we did is we put together an extraordinary coalition, a broad coalition of people in the city. And we put together a coalition of the unions, including the Burlington Patrolmen's Association, the cops, who were underpaid and had a very bad relationship with the city government, who was treating them very shabbily. But we worked with AFSME, the represented other city workers. We work with community organizations that were fighting against the road going through a neighborhood. We work with low-income advocates, especially in public housing. We work with the women's community because women at that point really were had no presence at all uh, in City Hall. We work with environmental environmentalists who had very serious concerns about some of the ideas being proposed. And it was a very, very broad coalition of grassroots activists and unions. And frankly, <laughs> the universe is a little bit larger now when you're running for president of the United States. You're not dealing with one small city, but with 50 states in this country. Uh, but that's the same thing we're trying to do. We're trying to create a coalition of working people, of the unions, of environmental groups, of women's groups, gay community as well, the minority communities. What I believe right now in this unprecedented moment in American history where we have the most dangerous president in the history of this country, we need an unprecedented grassroots campaign. And that is primarily reaching out to working people, reaching out to young people who do not traditionally vote, who have given up on the political process. And we reach out to them with a progressive agenda which speaks to their needs. And we reach out to them by knocking on doors and making phone calls and bringing people into the campaign. At the end of the day, John, uh, the reason I think we're going to win this election is we have well over one million volunteers in every congressional district in this country. You should see our people at work in Iowa right now and in New Hampshire right now. It really is extraordinary. This isn't a new concept for you. You got elected mayor with a 10 vote margin. And one of the things you set out to do in Burlington and then in Vermont, and I would argue that you continue to try and do as a presidential contender, is to look for ways to expand the electorate, to get more people voting. You got it. Exactly right. And here's what we did in Burlington. Two years, we have elections there every two years. Two years before I won, compared to two years after when I was running for re-election, John, we doubled, doubled the voter turnout. So, and we did especially well in low-income and working-class areas where people began to see what a local government could do for them in terms of childcare, in terms of after-school programs, in terms of such simple things as getting the snow removed from their streets and sidewalks at the right time rather than after all the other wealthier communities got that service. So when people saw what we were doing, and the impact we are having on their lives. People said, you know, hey, we never knew this. Government really can do something for us. Let's get out and vote. And we won uh, after re-election in Burlington, like we got two or three times the vote of our opponents in working class areas. You got into presidential politics in a, in a roundabout way by endorsing Jesse Jackson for president. Yep. 
in that in the 1988 race. And you have said to me before in, in previous interviews that Jackson really what he tried to do and what he did do was an inspiration for you. Absolutely. I think Jesse Jackson has never gotten his full due. And as you indicated, I supported him in 88, taking on the Democratic establishment, and we won. He won Vermont. But here is the point. You know, we take it for granted right now. We talk about coalition politics. We talk about the Rainbow Coalition. There was Jesse Jackson, and that memory is right in my mind right now, standing on a, a thing of hay in Iowa. I think it was a bale of hay, talking to virtually all white farmers in Iowa, but talking about the need to have a coalition of working class people all over this country, black and white and Latino and Native Americans. He reached out to the Native American community, reached out uh, to the Asian American community. And what Jackson did, and I think it was a major, major breakthrough in American politics, is he said, working people, no matter what your background, what your color, what your religion, we got to come together. And I thought he did an extraordinary job. You know, he was heavily outspent in that campaign. The establishment was certainly not sympathetic to him. But he did an extraordinary service to this country, not only in that campaign, but opening up the concept of coalition politics and the need for working class people uh, to come together. Jackson was, throughout his campaign in 88, dismissed as a candidate who so much of the media said couldn't win. And they said he couldn't win a state like Vermont, a state like Michigan. There was always this this sort of dismissing of him. He was an interesting candidate, but not somebody who most of the media treated as a potential winner. It is my sense that this happens almost always to outsider candidates, candidates who are challenging the establishment and people who are talking about expanding the electorate. You've experienced some of that, I, I think, in 2016 and also in this race. Yeah. Uh, look, John, it, it is no secret that when you take on the establishment, it's not just Wall Street and the drug companies and the insurance companies and the fossil fuel industry. You're taking on the media that is owned by corporate conglomerates. And if you, I think, uh, you know, read the coverage that we got, and I'm not here to say that it's all bad. It's not. There, Every now and then there are good articles. Often we are dismissed or we are ignored. I think many of these writers and journalists who live in a certain world where none of their friends, uh, upper middle class folks, will be voting for Bernie Sanders. And it's just hard for them to imagine that there are millions of people out there who do vote for us, who do support our agenda. So we become kind of ignored, we become dismissed, and very often, you know, in the Washington Post or wherever, you'll see negative, negative, negative. Not all, not all, but that's what you will see. But that doesn't surprise me. Uh, why would we expect otherwise? We are taking on the establishment, and despite the kind of coverage we get from media, uh, and it's true for not just newspapers, it's true for television a as well. This campaign is doing extraordinarily well. And I think because of the grassroots support that we have in Iowa, in New Hampshire, uh, in Nevada, in South Carolina, in California, I think we stand an excellent chance to win many of those states and win the presidency. But your point is well taken. At the end of the day, 
The only way I know that you beat Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is going to be a very formidable opponent for a lot of reasons. Guy lies all the time. He will merge federal agencies with his campaign. He has unlimited amounts of money. He has a strong base of support. He will be a very formidable candidate. The only way we beat Trump is when we have a record-breaking voter turnout, when young people get involved in a way that we have never seen, when working people get involved in a way we have never seen. And the only way that happens is when you have a campaign of energy and excitement based on the issues that will resonate with working class people all over this country. That's why we're going to win, I think. You also have been reaching out to a broader array of media outlets, writing articles for publications such as Foreign Affairs. You just wrote a piece on anti-Semitism for Jewish Currents, which has gotten attention all over the world. Right. Uh, you've spoken to independent media outlets, appeared on podcasts. Is this part of your effort to kind of break beyond the boundaries of traditional media? John, that is an, an absolutely essential part. And I am, look, here's what I think, you know, Donald Trump, you know, thinks that the mainstream media is an enemy of the people and he thinks that they're fake news. That's disgusting. I mean, that's what demagogues always do. They try to disparage media. So when you get critiqued, people will not believe the critique. I don't believe that, needless to say. But this is what I do believe. I believe that the corporate media has real limits to what they will cover. And if you want to get around that, if you want to talk about why we're the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people, if you want to talk about income and wealth inequality and three people owning more wealth than the, half, the bottom half of this country, if you want to talk about making public colleges and universities tuition-free and canceling student debt or coming up with a wealth tax that says to the billionaires they're going to start paying their fair share of taxes. And I'll tell you some other issue out there, and that is the issue of climate change. The more I study that issue, the more frightened I am of the severity and the speed in which climate change is causing devastating harm to this planet. And it's only going to get worse. The corporate media will not focus on that issue anyway, shape or form, the way it has to. So on all of these issues, we're going to have to do it ourselves. We're going to work with our allies in the progressive media. And I know they are under a lot of pressure uh, right now as well. But we reach out. Certainly the nation has done an extraordinary job, as have other publications, other uh, radio hosts, other podcast people. And we do our best to reach out and support them. Now, you have had... A a big fall, you know, an incredible last couple of months uh, where you had a real health challenge, a heart attack. And a lot of people, I think at, at a certain point, tried to write you off as a candidate. You've now come back, pretty strong poll positions, a lot of remarkable endorsements. I'm interested in kind of where you're at right now, where you, you feel about what's happened over the last few months and about going forward from here, because it's, it, it, you're sort of breaking all kinds of expectations politically. Huh. Well, I mean, I will be honest with you, and you and I have known each other for many decades now. You know, I have been enormously lucky in terms of my health. And, uh, you know, there are so many people out there who every day are dealing with chronic illnesses and you know, I thank God, it, it, you know, it just never happened to me. I, I was a kid. I was a long distance runner. I had great endurance. 
And then one day in, in Las Vegas, six weeks ago or something, you know, I had this real discomfort in my chest and it was diagnosed as a heart attack and I had two stents put in and I spent uh, two and a half days in, in the hospital. And that was a shock to my system, not physically, but I got to tell you, emotionally as well, because, you know, you kind of, you know, maybe selfishly, maybe foolishly, you kind of think that your body is never going to fail you. And then for the first time in my life, in a real sense, it did. But I had great health care out there in Las Vegas. And the procedure that I had is something that's done about a million times a year. A couple of stents were put in. It turned out that my artery had one of my arteries had been blocked. The other two are in good shape. And, you know, after one day in the hospital, I was walking. And, you know, right now I feel 100% healthy. Uh, we're uh, running a, a very vigorous campaign. And I guess there's a lesson that I personally learned on an emotional level is the understanding that there are a lot of people who are suffering with health issues in this country. And many of those people, by the way, unlike me, who had good health insurance, uh, might not have gone into that uh, urgent care facility or to the hospital because they were afraid that they couldn't pay the bill. And maybe more than ever, that event uh, made me realize the need to make sure that every person in this country, regardless of their income, can go to the doctor when they have to and not worry about the hospital bills they may incur if there was a serious illness. You also had this remarkable experience of having so many people step up. Yep. And I do think it seems that your campaign, it's, it's changed in some senses in these last few weeks, uh, the endorsements, the rallies. I don't know if you sense that. Maybe I'm, I'm interpreting it in the wrong way, but it seems as if there's a different energy there. I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, it builds on what, you know, we've talked about from day one is us, not me. So Bernie Sanders finds himself in the hospital. Bernie Sanders has to take off a few weeks from the campaign in order to recuperate. And people all around the country were saying, you know what, it's not just Bernie. It's the need to guarantee health care to all people, to raise wages in this country, to deal with climate change, to deal with education, criminal justice, immigration reform. It's not just Bernie. And Bernie has his role, but we have our role as well. And I think you're quite right. I think we have sensed that, that all over this country, people are saying, you know what? We've got to stand up maybe a little bit taller than we did before. It can't all be Bernie. And I think that has been a galvanizing impact, has had a galvanizing impact on the campaign. And I think we have seen a significant increase in energy, in, in uh, certainly turnouts at our rally. It wasn't just you know, the great rally we did in New York with Alexandria. We had 26,000 people. We had uh, 10,000 people out in Minneapolis with Ilan Omar. We had 5,000 people out with Rashida in, in Detroit. Uh, we're going to California uh, literally tomorrow. We're going to have, I'm sure, good turnouts as well. So we sense that, that people now are stepping up to the plate and understanding in a very profound way that it is us and not just Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Hey, John, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the final conversation in our Next Left series. Before we sign off, I wanted to thank some folks and to offer a few thoughts on what we've learned about the political upheavals and about where we're headed in 2020 and beyond. 
The idea for this podcast developed after the 2018 elections, when Aaron O'Mara, Katrina Vandenhoevel, and Frank Reynolds, and I, began talking about how the nation could better understand and explain the new politics that are emerging as a fresh generation of progressive candidates was beginning to redefine what is possible. These candidates weren't just winning elections, although that was a very big deal. They were embracing and advancing ideas that had for too long been rejected or marginalized. And they were proving that radical proposals for reforming the criminal justice system, taking on the military industrial complex, and saving the planet were politically viable. We wanted to talk about all this with the people who were making the change, and a podcast seemed to be the ideal vehicle. We got a lucky break early on when a brilliant organizer and thinker, Sophia Steinert Eboy, signed up as our producer. Her technical skills, her values, her ideals played a vital role in shaping this podcast. I mentioned values and ideals because that's really what this next left politics is all about. What happened in 2016 was remarkable and daunting. The Sanders campaign was a source of hope and inspiration for millions of Americans, just as the Trump election later in the year was a source of frustration and fear. At the intersection of all these sentiments was an understanding that something wasn't working in our politics and that something had to be done. The people we spoke with in this podcast did it. They ran and they won. And they did so with an understanding of the urgent need to change how progressives campaign and how they govern. The people we talked with have already made history and they will make a lot more in the years to come. The immediate tests will come in 2020 when the United States looks to elect a new president. The Democrats would be wise to borrow from the wisdom of these next left candidates and officials as they know a lot about framing issues, organizing coalitions, and driving turnout. But there will come a time when the people we interviewed for Next Left will themselves be running for the U.S. Senate, sitting on high courts, and I dare say, pursuing the presidency. We're keeping all these interviews archived at thenation.com, and I encourage new listeners to check them out. I've already found myself going back to them for ideas and inspiration. For now, however, I'll give one last thanks to Aaron, Katrina, Frank, and Sophia, to the sinkers and the aides and the allies who made these interviews possible, to the candidates and officials who shared their visions with us, and to you, our listeners. Thank you. And remember, always take the next left. Thank you.